Welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. Uh, I am your host today, Aslak Helisoy, and with me today, I have Marcin Florian and Sebastian Lambler. So, uh, Marcin, uh, Marcin and, um, and Sebastian actually came on the Cucumber Podcast nearly two years ago now to talk about Agile Anarchy. And if, uh, if you haven't listened to that episode, I, uh, I can highly recommend it. It's a great podcast uh, about throwing out all of your conventional, um, preposterous, agile practices um, out with, uh, with the bathwater. Um, but today, uh, we're going to talk about something else um, that we said we were going to talk about um, two years ago uh, at a later date, and today's the date. And what we're going to talk about today is vest testing. Um, now, vest testing to me is actually quite a new new concept, but I've been reading up about it a little bit, uh, and, and um, uh, I, I guess I'm, co- I'm familiar a little bit with, with the concepts, uh, but not with the name. Um, so why don't you give me a, a quick introduction to, well, first yourselves, I suppose, and then we'll, we'll get more into what vest testing is. Why don't we start with you, uh, Marcin? Okay, hello. Uh, my name is Martin. Uh, I'm currently working as a tribe lead at Spotify in Sweden. Uh, I've been here in Sweden for the last two years and uh, really enjoying the experience. Uh, I lived in the UK before that for about 10 years, and this is where we had our exciting adventures together with Seb. Um, so yeah, these days are mostly uh, try to create environments and support teams that deliver awesome software. Great, thanks. Um, Seb, how about you? Uh, I'm uh, I'm Sebastian. I'm uh, I'm a little bit from everywhere. I've got French in me. I've got German in me, and that's just on a Saturday night. Um, I, I I I build software. That's more or less what I try to do. Uh, I build teams more and more. Uh, platforms, architecture, and one of the things that I played a lot um, together with Marcin was to create uh, new new perspectives on how to build software, not just build the bits, but build the, the culture behind building the bits. And I think that's that's how we we ended up formalizing a whole bunch of stuff like the Agile Anarchy and like uh, Vest. And I'll, I'll just take the, the opportunity to say that I rebranded a little bit Vest since then because I think it goes way beyond just the testing part. And so I tend to call it the vertical slice technologies that testing is part of, but only one part of, of the whole Nice idea. trick. You kept the T. Yeah, I kept the T. I, just re- I, I rebranded, I kept the logo. <laughs> okay, so, so, so VEST originally it meant uh, vertical slice testing, but now it's vertical slice technology. Um, That's right. So... How did you come up with um, with vest testing um, in the first place? Uh, and then maybe you can tell us a little bit more about how it evolved. So originally, it, it's it's a bunch of practices that existed and were very well documented separately. Uh, part of it is how to build systems um, using feature driven. Um, slices of a system the other part is the bdd language that you create around understanding your software another part is where you test and the outside in approach and atdd acceptance test driven 
uh, all these various technologies that come from very different influences. You have Gershkoazik, you have Dan North, you have a whole bunch of people that came up and brought some of this stuff. And I think that um, the reason I called it vertical slice testing originally is um, because when you aggregate the architecture, the way to build features in an independent manner, and if you go back to what we did with uh, Agile Anarchy, the way to design uh, features around capabilities and uh, all this stuff fits really well together, and it's test driven. So it's to do vertical slice testing, you need vertical slices and you need to start with a test. Um, and it kind of evolved over time to become vertical slice technologies because I think there was a, too much focus on the testing part. But the testing part can only be delivered in certain kind of architectures. It's not something that you can just slap on something that you've not built purposefully to support this. And it's really the integration between the discovery of the language, the discovery of the specifications and the building of the features that kind of clustered all together. You've kind of called out the architectural parts there, Seb, explicitly. For me, this was very essential part of making this work and making it work the way we experienced it on the project. Um, I don't think it would have been, you know, that we, we talk a lot about how if we start applying TDD, for example, uh, we start being moved towards or like encouraged towards creating our designs in a way that our systems are testable. Uh, and I think with our vertical slice testing approach, there, there was an element that created, like influenced not just the localized design, but the whole system architecture in a way that was um, nicely testable with this approach. That's really interesting that you're saying that. Uh, it's This is something that we've we've seen as well in, in Cucumber. You know, we, we train a lot of people in, in behavior-driven development and, and, you know, various related uh, techniques. Um, and we realized that it was really hard for people to, to, to use those techniques unless they also have a software architecture that is testable. Uh, so it sounds like, sounds like um, very similar. And I would love to go and uh, just spend <laughs> lots of time with you guys and, uh, and discuss things um, and, and share ideas. So, so how long did it take then? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like you, you started out with, with a testing approach and you realized that, well, this isn't just about testing, it's also about architecture. Um, well, I, not 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 how long did it take, but like what 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 were the kind of challenges you saw people facing trying to trying to adopt these ideas without uh, changing the architecture? Maybe I can start a little bit with the specific example of a project where we worked together, and I uh, and I hope Seb can add a little bit more of a context around that. Uh, but the specific idea here that we had was that there was a system um, that was built over about eighteen months. Um, which you know you would consider done well. It was done with pair programming. Um, it was done using TDD, um, and you know it, it worked fairly well. It was like about three and a half thousand lines of code in, in uh, .NET. Um, but it got to the point where the tests became really hard to maintain, really brittle, uh, and it was almost impossible to add new functionality. So I guess that's a story anyone can relate to. Um, and this is where um, you know we, we started on on this adventure of trying to create something that is slimmer um, 
and that will survive more than 18 months in a state where it will continually evolve uh, and can be testable mm. and, and can be expanded. And this is where we kind of start, like looked at the TDD approach we had. What was missing there? Like how can we enhance that? What, was, what, was, what were some of the problems that we were facing? Uh, and I guess then we probably, um, you know, took a few months to uh, get more and more familiar with a with a slightly different approach, uh, with understanding the vertical slices of our system better, uh, with understanding how, like creating some of the usual, you know, boilerplate um, or or the the plumbing of the the testing frameworks um, that we put together to make this vest approach work. Um, but it was amazing to see how pretty early on, you know, those basic foundations allowed us to iterate and deliver features very quickly. So I think that, that's that's a very interesting part of that um, because one of the one of the things that we decided to do because we our project was very much of of the big rewrite that we always tell people not to do. Um, but but um, the reality was that systems after systems had been built in, in, in that business, um, continuously building up on what the company understood was their knowledge of how the system worked. And so Martin had a lot of experience in part of that system. Other people were coming from other teams with, with um, other knowledge uh, of the internal plumbing of how this stuff had been built a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And that survived quite a few iterations and quite a few versions of the architecture. And I tried I try to stay as hands-off as I could in the team, which tended to annoy people a little bit because I had an idea on my mind of where I wanted the team to go, but I kind of let them kind of fall into the the ideas that I, I was trying to 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 implement. But um, one of the things we started was with the null design. And so this is a little bit the same as uh, as um, as was formalized in computer science um, uh, by Roy Fielding uh, in defining architectures. You start with a null architecture, which is the architecture where there is nothing defined. <laughs> and we started with that in code. We started to say, well, I don't understand the system, and I'm supposed to be building that system with you guys. The knowledge you have, I don't understand. And so whenever we had conversations, the conversation very quickly went from a tiny bit of understanding and then yes, but yes, but yes, but yes, but yes, but. And it just kept on becoming so complicated that I was like, we can't even write a first specification. I don't understand mm -hmm. the system. And yeah. this, this has too much detail. And for me, it's all implementation detail. So let's go back to zero and let's just start writing examples that we can understand. Uh, and that's, that's the BDD approach that we started with originally, which is said, let's just start with one scenario, a very simple scenario. A user is yeah. going to request X and it's going to yeah. go and be dispatched to Y. I, you know, something yeah. just very, very basic. But Seb, I think we, we cannot uh, underestimate the effort that it took for people to stop thinking in terms of implementation details. And particularly so mm. because we had an existing system. Like, create... like tearing people away from thinking in terms of oh this system does these kind of requests and they go get these kind of responses and that's how we, we interpret them well okay that is what the system does today can you can we you know how can we abstract the 
behavior we're interested in from that. It's, you know, I think, I don't know, how many times have we restarted that? It was, you know, probably two weeks to get to the first super plain scenario that finally you could see had none of the, uh, you know, of those marks of implementation left in it, where you could see this is clean now. This is something that describes our intentions of what the behavior should be, not the intention of the implementation entangled in the same sentence. No, I think I think that's the the interesting point was that th there's a whole bunch of other things that happen, right? So first, the team had to unlearn everything they knew, so that they could encode their knowledge on each functional part of the system. And the system got built architecturally in a way that could map each of the features we were looking at. So we were starting by, I mean, it's a very typical BDD approach, right? You start with a specification, you might start with a bunch of examples, and you're given one then, and whatever language you decide to use. And we started with that. And the other thing we started with was to have the human on the team. <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> one of the person on the team. Why did you find one of those? Uh, well, she was a BA, and we told her that we didn't really need a BA, so she could transform herself into someone much more interesting to us, like someone that speaks English and is not really interested in technical matters, but should be able to read the code that we write and understand what happens without necessarily it being English prose, because I don't really, it's not really my, my, my preference, but it was code that she could decipher. If you remove right. the brackets and the underscores, you could understand what was going on. And she had the experience of how the system worked from a functional perspective, like from a human beings talking to human beings as opposed to implementation. And so part of the part of the way we modularized the system is to say, we're going to do a bunch of uh, scenarios around a feature we want to build. And that feature is going to be part of a capability, is going to span multiple components, but we're going to build it in a way where we start with a yeah. spec and we more or less don't have any unit tests. We just have spec-driven test, and that's it, uh, because that's right. the, the kind of user interface of our system. And so it had to be human-readable. It had to reset all the knowledge of the team to restart relearning everything. And so that's kind of how it evolved over time. And what's very interesting is we ended up with a system that was extremely simpler than the original system, because all the various states that existed in the previous system, once we reanalyzed re everything with specification, we didn't need them. Yeah, the, There was no need for them to exist. I mean, it, was, it was a class example of uh, you know accidental complications in the system uh, that just grew with the implementation you know I, I I remember very well Seb when when we talked to our BA and said you know imagine we're moving forms around there are no computers what would we put on a piece of paper that's 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 a design methodology I quite I, I, I started applying for restful systems to try to explain to people how links and forms exist. And I explained to them that links were just a, a way to go to this specific desk because <laughs> it says this is where you renew yes. your driving license. And then the form is the piece of paper that people ask you to fill in. And we know how to deal with that because since the ancient Egyptian, we have administrative forms to fill in and to keep archived. And so RESTful systems are built like that. And so we modeled the system around those normal behaviors that human can have when there's no computer involved. So to me, this, it sounds like what you did was to... Um, to come up with a with a with a software architecture where where the domain logic is is completely decoupled from from frameworks, yes, um, such as UI frameworks or persistent frameworks, uh, as well as external dependencies like message queues and 
uh, databases uh, and so on. How did you know? We had all of these, yes. <laughs> but absolutely. <laughs> I mean, is that right? Is, it, is that what you did? Absolutely. Yeah. This is exactly, you know, the, so the, the term that we could throw in here, I guess, is the um, hexagonal architectures, yeah. um, where, where we could really isolate the raw business domain um, functionality and ignore all those external things and just throw them into ports and adapters. Okay, so those are those are some buzzwords that I, I think um, you're going to have to explain. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, I know what it is, and I, I would like to talk about it all the time because I think it's awesome. But just what's the what's the what's the elevator pitch of hexagonal architecture and ports and adapters? Okay, so the, the, the idea behind hexagonal architectures is a little bit in reaction to the typical N-tier architectures from the 90s that uh, vendors still enjoy pushing as a good solution. And in traditional architecture, the database and the message queue will be at the center of your system, right? It's the, the, the baseline of what is just inside your system, and you build layers on top of that to provide the functionality on the outer layers, typically with the database, but messaging systems tend to be dealt in exactly that way. Absolutely, and that ends up, I mean, and then that creates the systems where suddenly your HTML is generated in your stored procedures, right? Yes, uh, you know what yeah. you do, and then you have a you have a get customer BAO that calls the customer DAO, and it's yeah. all the same code, and everything's animic except your stored procedures. You know that's the, that's kind of coding ninety stuff. Uh, the, the 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 hexagonal architecture is trying to trying to externalize all those all those dependencies on your system so that the core code that is useful to you is self contained. And all the dependencies are external systems themselves. And we call it port and adapters because it's a little bit like, um, uh, we don't have video, but it's a little bit like the, the power plug I bring with me all the time, which has multiple plugs uh, for various countries all in one single container. My laptop connects to a standard port, it's the USB-C one, but on the other side, I can plug it into a British plug or I can plug it in with a European plug, and it doesn't really matter for my laptop. So building a system uh, that uh, goes to the database or goes to an in-memory version of the same database is how we replace those dependencies. And once you do that, you don't really need the, that distinction, that artificial distinction between unit and integration tests, because fundamentally the core logic of your application does not give a damn if you're connected to a database or an in-memory system. Right. Yeah, so I, uh, what I was going to add, like for me, the metaphor is like you're really pushing out uh, all these interfaces around the core of your system. And then the hexagons is just the idea that, and, and this is where the, the vertical slices part fits nicely, is that you can then decouple your system into those nice hexagons. And then, you know, you, you get a nice um, set of tiles that, fit together and then you could put them together in a way that fulfills your requirements so vest testing evolved into um well uh, <laughs> the acronym evolved uh, from being vertical slice testing into vertical slice technology and and so that was just adding hexagonal architecture as a as a as a, as a pattern to achieve 
the virtual slice testing? Think, is, is that it? I think I think there's a, I think there's a, I, I believe in constraint systems. I think that the more open your system is, the more difficult it is to evolve and to make functional. So I believe, I, just like in architecture, I believe that in software, the more constraints you apply generally to your software, the better you 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 can keep control of the complexity involved in building software. So one of the things that we adopted was port and adapters because they allow us to, so to give you a simple example, because it was a RESTful system, we had a bunch of different resources. Each resource was its own hexagonal architecture that was plugging in the outside world through messaging and through HTTP. And so each of those resources was built completely independently. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they used a protocol to communicate between themselves, but that protocol was an external dependency from each of those resources. So they were all built. And so we had a bunch of top-level user-driven specifications for each of those resources. And technically, they could have been run against the whole system, each of those tiles all interacting together and individually for each of those tiles, and everything would have still worked. So that was that was a bringing in the hexagonal architecture. But then I added a bunch of other constraints, which kind of turned it into something a little bit more complicated. So one of the rules um, that you try to keep in the constraint of the system is that you only test the system at the user interface level. And I'm not talking about uh, HTML or a web format application or WinForms application. I'm talking about if you have a user consuming something, which might be an API, which might be a security system that needs to be configured, which might be an HTML page, you test at that level. And the reason is very simple. Uh, if you have bugs in the system that no one ever can, can ever trigger, they are important, but they're probably less costly than the ones that consumers see. And so we don't have the time to test everything. We can't test every single scenario. I don't even think, I think it's a computer science problem. We can't even test the whole system for all scenarios. We can only test things that we understand. And because of that, we can keep on testing, 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 but you need to prioritize what is important first. And so what we prioritize above everything else is user interface level tests, the stuff that people are going to be faced so that we have a guarantee, a reasonable guarantee that when users are going to use the system, they're not going to stumble upon something stupid. So that, that that's a constraint on the on the user interface, and that constraint actually has a super nice side benefit of constantly uh, encouraging the team to think from the user's perspective, not from the implementer's perspective, not from the technology perspective, um, and also creating like putting an actual UI on top of that then becomes trivial. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's the, that's that's absolutely correct. It's a very important point. Is you can't build systems in a in a customer driven way unless you have a very strong understanding of why you're building something. And so the whole discovery process is also is also the part where you try to come up with with the user stories that are actually about not about as a user blah. I, I prefer feature injection uh, where you say in order to provide this benefit. Um, then I want to be able to do X. And without having that value, that that capability you're trying to deliver as the driving force behind the feature you're building, you're not capable of, of staying focused on what actually matters. And so the, 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 the limitation of using things at the user interface level is that if I can't use the language that the user would use, and I can't know what reason I'm building the feature for, I can't actually write the code. 
there's a really, really strong binding between the two. And so once you've done the discovery in English language, talking with people or talking within the team to try to discover the words that you need to use, the, the concept you're trying to do, once the team has everything agreed, then you write the code. So I'm trying to, to, to think about how, uh, how this fits into, into testing then. So it sounds like what, uh, what, uh, with your approach, you end up with, with a domain model uh, that, that sits nicely inside a hexagon decoupled from, from all of the infrastructure. Yes. Um, and on this hexagon, there is, there's various ports that represent the things that the user can do with the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and those ports are, are, are simply, uh, you know, methods that can be called. And then, and then you can plug a, uh, you can plug a UI on top of that. But what, what, what about the tests? Where, where do they plug in? They plug in at the same level where your users would. SX. So, for example, we were building a RESTful system. So all the tests were using HTTP. The tests were not actually testing the code. They were testing the user, the, the, the HTTP interface. Right. And they were triggering everything from the HTTP interface. Before that, in a previous system, we were using uh, event sourcing. And so our user interface level was the, the event streams that we had. It's exactly the same thing. If you're going... Uh, in, in hexagonal architectures, you always have the left-hand side kind of understood as being the inputs and the right-hand side being uh, kind of the uh, the external dependencies. And on the left-hand side, you test at the same level where you're going to plug that other system, that user, that mm-hmm. consumer, that automated agent, that HTTP API. So we try to always test at the level where we provide what that, that we actually provide to customers, to our customers, so the people outside our team. And so that means also, yeah. you know, no more cheating of, oh, I'll just create this little nice method because it makes writing the tests easier. You know, that's uh, avoiding all this pitfall of, of just creating, uh, you know, entry points into the system that have nothing to do with the actual behavior of the system, but are artifacts of how we decided to write the test. So um, in terms of... of um of test reliability, one, one problem that many teams have is, is tests that are, are slow, tests that are brittle, and, and as you mentioned initially, uh, Martian, uh, tests that are, uh, are expensive, they're hard to maintain. Yes. Um, what have you seen after adopting this approach um, in terms of improving these three things? Oh my goodness, that's that's we'll another start. hour that we could spend here. Um, <laughs> well, let's t- talk about speed, for example. Like, you know, be- before and after, what, what you know, how long were your test suites? Oh, in terms of the execution times. So I, I, I yeah, think this yeah, is yeah. something that, that Seb already alluded to, uh, which was a very essential part of this approach, which was that all the implementations of the external dependencies uh, ha- were dualistic. So we had a real implementation that would use a database, a file system, a network, and we had in-memory representations of these same resources that would allow us to execute our tests super quickly. Um, so I, th- I think I have actually have some numbers here. Uh, we ended up with about 250 tests, um, and you know they would be... So one of the tech leads I used to work with before said, you know, if your test suite takes more than four minutes, and I think he was generous, uh, they're not worth maintaining anymore. 
like you have to push that below four minutes. I think a minute is is good these days. Um, and I think we we were around you know single digits there, like one two minutes to run everything. Uh, so to yeah. test every behavior of our system uh, with the like end to end with in memory representation. So that that's that's an interesting part because it, it's also part of the constraint uh, that is part of this. The external systems are not using stubs. They're not using the traditional mock approach. They are not anemic implementations. Every single thing that you know the exi- the, the real system would do, you do in memory exactly the same way. So for example, we were using Mongo. We were not just having a little collection doing, you know, pretending that objects were going over the wire. We knew that the contract, that, that's where defining the contract with those external systems while you're building the systems is very important. The contract with Mongo is not just that you can insert or add or modify documents. There's also concurrency control. There's the fact that it gets serialized to yes. Beeson. There's a whole bunch of other features that are part of that contract. You don't see it as a developer, but they are source of bugs. They are source of issues. And so when we build the in-memory implementation, we have to reflect every single thing we understand about the system we implement. And so to be able to do that, of course, you don't want to be implementing a whole database in memory because that would be crazy and no one has the time to do that kind of crazy stuff. So you change where the contract is so that your contract becomes more semantic. So when you build a test, you build the system that goes with it and you build also the abstraction saying, well, actually, I want you to go and persist that information about that customer. You're not going to say, I want to insert the data in that table. You're going to say, here's the data and I want you to go and persist it in whichever way you think is the best. And then the in-memory implementation has to reflect everything you know about the external system. So that when we're talking about messaging and PubSub and and database and all the system that we mocked uh, with those, um, what I call simulators, mostly because I like renaming stuff, <laughs> uh, but mostly because it's the engineering yes. naming. So I, li- I like the idea of simulators, test rigs. Um, I think they represent better what we're trying to build here. Uh, each of those had an implementation that was as closely as we can make it to our understanding, but it was fully functional. So the messaging right. system in memory was a messaging system with all the features that RabbitMQ would have exposed. But you would, but so you put an abstraction in front of the well, I say let's take RabbitMQ. So you wouldn't you wouldn't implement the RabbitMQ protocol or AMQP or whatever it is. You would put something in front of that, and that's the thing that the application talks. To. Yes, yes. But then the application would talk to something that is semantic. Yes, and 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 that would and and that would have a very uh, a, a much more domain specific and much simpler API than. Uh, the RabbitMQ. Absolutely. Am I right? Absolutely. And then, and then behind that, we would have an in-memory representation and a real representation, and we could have a very specific targeted test suite that would run against both implementations and validate that they are semantically identical. Right. So, ha, ha, ha. So, so now you can run um, really fast acceptance tests um, just using a, uh, a simulator um, message message queue but but what kind of confidence can that possibly give you because well it's a simulator well <laughs> let's put it that way when you when you when you're building a rocket engine you can't just burn rocket engines all the time 
you build small parts, you have the calculations that the engineers came up with on how good it's going to be, and then you test it, right? You test the fire and you, you test the, the engine, you test against the numbers you get, and then you adjust. And that's exactly yeah. what you do in testing as well. It's not, I mean, you have to go and, for, it's the same thing as continuous delivery. If you don't go through it and you don't jump that, 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 that jump of hope to start uh, changing stuff, you have to go in and saying, we're going to implement everything we understand. Every single time our simulator breaks, well, we're going to change the simulator. And the more we do that, the more we understand the contract with the system we were actually using. So which confidence do you have? Never 100%. But actually, every single time there is something we didn't know about, it's a learning that gets encoded once in code and can be reused with every single team that uses that system. Because over time, what you're doing is you're re-encoding all those contracts that were hidden away. And so over time, yeah. your simulator becomes the encoding of all the knowledge you have of the systems you use. A bug in an implementation of an HTTP provider that you're using, timeouts that happen from time to time, uh, error injection, all this stuff is stuff that gets lost when you move from one team to another because that knowledge is in people's head and not in people's code. When you build simulators, you integrate all this. And it stays in code and it's source control. So what we're doing is we're learning how to use the systems and putting them in source control. And I, and I think that the the example with Mongo was just so, such an amazing uh, experience of, you know, I don't think we would have ever learned quite so much about how Mongo actually functions if we, were, if we weren't building a simulator for it. Um, mm. And, you know, we, we had that just creating that level of knowledge, that intimacy with the product, uh, essentially, uh, is what created a lot of confidence for us, um, because we suddenly no longer we are suddenly no longer guessing how that component behaves, but we're encoding that knowledge in our simulators. Um, so, are these simulators uh, reusable across um, different projects, yes. or, or do they end up being two domain specific? Being too I, I think in our case, when we worked on that together, they were we we've, we've ended up reusing them uh, because right. you know it's still a database, it's still a persistence layer, or it's still a messaging layer. So if you um, you know have the luxury of of creating of, of having this level of abstraction and understanding at this level of abstraction that okay, this is these are the semantics of a. Um, you know, persistent uh, persistence layer, or these are the semantics of a pop subsystem. You know, this is how you send messages. Yeah. This is how the queuing uh, works. Um, then you can take that this level up into into something that is consumable um, beyond just your your very uh, specific implementation. Like there would be no, yeah, there would be no domain specific concepts in those simulators. I mean, you could okay. if you were, if you were on a smaller scale project, you would probably start with something that is more semantic. But what, what we ended up with was to change the to change the stuff a little bit, so that instead of um, instead of uh, telling the system to instead of asking the persistence layer to do you know persist customer persist x persist y, we kind of reversed it uh, so that. We basically give, gave the persistence layer, here's all the things that happened. Here's a bunch of events that our domain generated. Go and persist that in whichever way you want. And that part is very generic because the driver 
um, the driver for that database or the driver for the memory version that works the same way as Mongo, which is really what the implementation is, is capable of reading those messages and doing all the optimizations it wants in building and persisting that data and and the the interface stays very generic. And for PubSub or for command processing, these things are very well understood patterns. You know, they take two interfaces, each of them, it takes a little bit of binding together. Those things are reusable. And when you use external systems, so I, I presented about Vest last year in Malmö, in, uh, in Oradev, and um, I was chatting yesterday with one of the speakers here that was telling me that he's been implementing uh, vest and re-implementation of external systems with banks in in uh, in Sweden all over the place and people are starting to really love that because especially in banking you have a lot of external systems and he's been convincing mm -hmm. people that re-implementing them bug for bug allow them to track when the bug happens how long they last and have the knowledge when they're going to be fixed because external providers very rarely tell you when they change something right so it allows them to reproduce bugs in external systems reliably and, and, and making sure that your system can cope with it. And then you run your little right. simulators, like your test for the simulator against the real thing as well, and then you detect, oh, now this, you know, the test that we had for this particular buggy behavior no longer uh, passes, so maybe it got fixed. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's the beauty because you reuse the same specification against multiple implementations, and that's that's really what makes it, um, what gives you the confidence because you have a test suite and you can run it against the real system or you can run it in memory and it's the same code, yes. it's the same tests. So if they pass yeah. on both, you're pretty much okay. And then you've driven all of those implementations through the behaviors that your system really needs. So you're not testing something that your system isn't using. I want to move the conversation a little bit more around um, uh, how, how to make this happen. We've talked about um, how, how this is done, um, you know, technologically. But imagine a team that has, you know, they have a legacy system, um, with a very slow and brittle and expensive test suite, and they realize they can't work with this anymore. They want, uh, you know, they think test, uh, they think VEST sounds, um, sounds great. Um, where do they start? What would you recommend they, they, they do first to, to move towards this? Wow, yes. <laughs> so don't, don't, don't <laughs> like we did, so don't try to rewrite everything from scratch, although sometimes this, this is the right thing to do. Um, it's super hard. Like I would say the two things uh, that come to my mind straight away is, is first uh, really start, how can you start moving away from thinking about implementation toward thinking about what is your business domain? Like what, what are the problems mm -hmm. that you're trying to solve? And then do the, the classical thing that you do if, with any legacy system, like find those, um, you know, friction or like the, the, the fractures in your system where you can isolate parts, like pull out something. How can you pull out the smallest possible piece of your system and create a VEST approach just for that system and create a, what are ports and adapters, ACL and the anti-corruption layer to the rest of the system? Right. Um, so I think, that I think what, that's uh, Michael Feathers calls a scene. Yes. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I was going yes, to say exactly that. Yes, that. That's, that's, exactly, that's exactly what I was going to reference. It's, uh, Michael writes about it in, um, in Addressing the Bull of Mud. You're trying to find a seam into a system. And so with those teams, usually what, what 
what I tend to try to get them to do is to say, well, you're going to have a new feature you're going to build. Let's try to make that system not make anything worse in the existing code base. So let's try to find the boundary of stuff we can put and extract. Let's build a new test suite just for that feature, completely independently from everything else, so that you don't break anything else, you don't mutate anything else, you just try to put new abstractions on the left and the right side of that little hexagon you try to do. One of the difficulties with VEST, of course, is that there is an upfront investment. You have to really believe that this is going to help and it's going to be a little bit painful at the beginning because you start with none of the infrastructure, especially mm-hmm. in an existing code base. Yes. But I think if you are at the point where the code base has become, or the testing code base especially, has become unmaintainable, you need to have a complete shock of approach. What I see people do and fail is to take a very, very poor testing code base and say, okay, we can't deal with that, and then write a new one, but not having addressed any of the reasons why the code base ended up the way it it did. Because if you don't change the discovery process to write your specifications, and if you don't change the way you maintain your test suite as being production code, and you don't test, you don't change the way of isolating each of the feature into a nice silo, well, if you don't address the structural problems, there is no technology and no approach that is focused on testing that will help you because you're just going to end up with the same thing two years down the line. And then you had one problem, and you have two problems. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you need to test, uh, sorry, you're going to have to modify um, not only the the test code, but you're going to have to modify uh, the code being tested as well, which brings me to, to, uh, I guess, the next question, you know, who who are the people who need to be involved in this this effort? And in particular, you know, in organizations where you have testers sitting in this silo and, and programmers sitting in this other silo, what would you recommend they do? Leave the testers on the existing system. <laughs> no, I think I think I think it depends what we talk about when we talk about testers. I think exploratory testing has its place. Uh, I think in the kind of systems I'm I'm talking about. To do it really well, you start with backend systems because they are easier to find the seams into. If it's your first one, try to do the backend because if you try to do at the HTML level, it requires a significantly more complex uh, implementation of VEST that is based on, I mean, the technology has evolved and we have better systems than Selenium now, but, um, or Phantom JS and all these things, and we've got better things that we used to. Uh, but I think it's easier if you start with the backend systems. As far as the, as far as the front end, when you do that, with testers, it's it's I've not I've not found a solution. Manual testers for me are are, are a big unknown. That I'll just be kind. It's a big unknown of what to do um, efficiently with them. I mean, I, I always think of this in terms of like let's extract some of the mindset that these people have because that's super valuable. Um, and it's just just unfortunate. Like for me, this is. Uh, you know, we're we're misusing people to do things that machines are much better at doing, <laughs> like repeating the same things over and over again. Unless we talk, like Dex have mentioned, you know, the, like the exploratory testing or like moving the testing one level up. Um, but like in, in the yeah. system that we built together, we didn't have anyone who had the budget of being a tester. And we were repeatedly asked, you know, would you like a tester sitting in your team? And we said, like, you know, we don't want to be cruel to that tester. They will be very bored. <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, I think I think I think that's the thing, right? So I I, I saw something uh, at a conference recently called uh, mob testing. Hmm. Which is, we were we were doing mob programming. Uh, see previous podcast, but 
they were using uh, testers, traditional testers, um, and and other people in the business to to reverse engineer how the software is working just by using it. And I think that's a very very good approach of trying to use those people as the English speaker, like we had in our team, uh, to start yeah. with, saying we need to discover the, the system, and so you need to apply your testing thought process into discovering all those scenarios that we may have missed. And I really don't care about doing hundreds of pages of text validation on input fields because who's got the time for this kind of craziness? If you want to pay people to do that, do that, but I just don't see any value in building the systems because, I mean, it has value, but it has lower value than everything else we can do. So it's really at the bottom of the pile of what we care about. But in terms of of systems functionality, the discovery process is very useful. If you add on top of it test mobbing where you put a mob of people trying to use the software, trying to discover how the user experience works and what the scenarios are, and you involve the actual users with the testers, at that point then you have a systematic validation process of the understanding that you encoded in your specifications. I think that's Mm -hmm. how I would use testers as resources that I would probably pull in two days every two weeks to do a mob discovery process because that's useful feedback for me. Someone that is sat continuously next to a team just clicking around, I've had the experience. It's never been nice. And when we tried to get them to write code, because there's a whole bunch of people that think they can take over writing the specifications, um, and I've done that since 2010 quite a few times using different technologies and personally be it the BAs or the testers writing the specs I've had very very little positive experiences they have happened but a tester is not a developer and so there's a moment where the two are very difficult and they become expensive you can get people to write F-sharp scripts or Cucumber or any any specification language there's specs.net and .net etc but the cost of maintaining the plumbing code behind it just becomes so much higher than the value you get out of it I'm personally not a big fan I understand why people do it but I'm not a big fan so so it sounds like um, where you've seen this work it's the same people who are writing the production code um, uh, and writing the, um, the the test automation code. Absolutely, because they are they are intrinsically linked. Uh, you can't separate those two activities. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is back to sorry that what Seb was talking about constraints as well. Like this is this is trying to get you uh, like it's a forcing function for the developers who work on implementation to you know, move away from the implementation details as frequently as they can and think about what are the features we're trying to build. Yeah, I think, I think that's another point that's very important is that it's not the developers that build all those test suites. It's all the people involved in understanding what the mm. software is supposed to do. Right? right, so it's not yeah. the test. The test code is supposed to be specifications that are readable by human beings because they are writable by human beings, and that's how we write them. Because we yeah. don't have technical lingo in those test suites, so we had we had a whole bunch of different people having knowledge about the system that were bringing in that knowledge when we were discovering how the system would be built. It would be part of the discovery when we start building a feature, and it would be ongoing for the whole length of the feature building. And if you need someone from the business to come and share the knowledge, you need a BA person, you need a tester that has experience on the existing system, you bring all these people in and you write the specs together. Mm. 
And then you let right. the developers do the job. And then we, you pull them back in every time you have a new spec to write because you want to know where you're going next. You don't stack up 70 specs and then try to write the code behind it. You start with a bunch of scenarios, maybe two or three or four, a tiny bit of the functionality, and then you go and code it. And a couple of days, you come back saying, this is what we have. This, this worked. This didn't work. What do we do next? And you just keep on adding more scenarios over time on a continuous basis. But for that, you need to be able to understand what the business is actually wanting, yeah. needing, and, and how the system is supposed to function. And for that, you need all those people that are outside. It's not the devs doing it. Otherwise, you go back to the traditional classical one class one test stuff that we used to have right yeah and and i think you've hit a little nugget in there seb as well talking about uh you know back to your question uh, about testers like they are so often the people who have the most intricate detailed knowledge about the system uh you know because they had to be able to reproduce the these most awkward bugs uh, that only happen on a full moon, right? And that's um, that's where they're invaluable in this process. Yeah. So the testers um, and uh, and business analysts and, and and sometimes product owners they they have knowledge about what tests to write, but the developers have the knowledge about how to write them. Would yeah. You, would, you, would you agree with that? The person on the keyboard is the dev. But yeah. the, the the given when then are probably discussed together and written together, yeah. but in code form. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think this this is like Seb's point again. Very very important is that we are there mostly about creating a shared understanding. Like we want to make sure that whoever's in the room has the same view of what we're building here. And this is what we need to really avoid that, you know, that the BA had some view through their use cases and the tester had some view through their test cases and the developers have some view through their implementation. Like that's the pitfall that we are trying to avoid. And the knowledge route, that's the other one. There is every single time we discover something new, the longer you keep it in someone's head, the more unlikely it is to be transferred correctly to the next person. So, for example, meetings, we would never send the B8 on a discovery mission to then report to us what she heard because then she reports it to one dev, uh, that dev will pair with another dev. And by the time the code is done, you actually have a system that has nothing to do (laughs) with the original stuff (laughs) with a whole bunch of knowledge that no one really needs. If you have a new scenario, you need it right now because the team is ready to do some work. You need to encode it as quickly as possible in code. So ideally, you put everybody in front of the same computer and you just write the bloody spec Mm -hmm. because if you leave it a day or two days, people won't remember. People take notes and pictures of white and do you know how often we use them? Never. Because three days later, whatever you scribble on that whiteboard is just not useful anymore because that date, that information rots. You've lost context. Yeah. You've lost detail. And so what we're trying to do is to work as real time as possible in, 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 and, and as focused as possible on that feature, that moment in time and that X. If you don't have the right person to talk to to do that right now, Build another part of the system until you have access to those people. Don't stock up knowledge for three weeks because you have access to someone one hour every three weeks. We can't solve stupid. If you don't have access to the people that have the knowledge and the say, you don't build a system because otherwise you're going in the dark and stealing money from the people paying you your your daily rate. It's just not, it's not healthy because you can't make good products and good software like that. It just doesn't happen. 
So do you think, what's, what do you think is the biggest obstacle um, in, in, in organizations um, to, to start working this way? I mean, I definitely see one, you know, if you've just heard the description that Seb gave you, uh, you know, this is this preposterous idea that people come together and spend their time interacting uh, and maybe waiting for, you know, the next thing to happen. Uh, so we're, we're moving away from fully utilizing every single person to maximizing that learning. And for many organizations, yeah. sadly, that is still unthinkable. You know, what do you mean we put seven people in the room, but only one person types on the keyboard? Like such a waste of time. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's one one of the, the the strong mindsets that that is very hard to change and move away from. Uh, I, I, Woody as well, uh, the guy that does all the mob programming, um, programming content, which is an, an adorable guy. If you don't know him, go and check him out. He's he's absolutely awesome. He reminded me that uh, he, he quoted me on something I don't remember saying, which happens <laughs> a lot. Uh, and I was saying that for me, the for me, develop pro development was about the knowledge that you gain and that the code was just a side effect of that. And, and I think that's where uh, organizations are not capable of dealing with that level of shift of focus. Because if you encode good knowledge, it will stay forever in a form that is reusable. Software itself, we, as we all know, after two years, no one wants to work on it. <laughs> after 10 years, it may become decommissioned. Uh, and after 15, you can switch it off the server. But I think that's the, the, the biggest obstacles are purely from a, an organizational perspective. And this is where yeah. this integrates with the Conway's law, the union architecture of independent components and independent teams in organizations where people can decide their own their own way of working. And this is the, the, the big integrated part about vertical slash technologies. And after that, is the, there is the technical, uh, and I think Marcin may, may be more able to tell you about that because... Because it's a homegrown thing for me, hmm. I may not have had the experience of being confronted to to all this stuff in one go. But I think from a technical perspective, there's stuff to to wrap your head around, which might not be very natural for all the developers on the team. Mm. No, absolutely. Because you're asking them to unlearn how they do the testing yes. and how they do the design and how they do the system. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's very. You know, we we talk a lot about the waterfall approach of uh, delivering projects and how that's bad. Uh, but sometimes I think we forget that, that a lot of engineers have that waterfall mindset. You know, they want to design it up front on a piece of paper uh, and then they want to implement that and then they want to write some tests about this. Uh, and we're shifting that all around. Okay, um, I think we're getting close to, um, close to the hour here. Um, we're gonna wrap this up. Um, before we before we say goodbye to you guys, um, is there any anywhere that you could recommend that people can go and learn more about um, what we talked about? I think Seb has mentioned one of the talks that he's done at Oradev. Uh, I did one talk at uh, Agilia conference in 2015. Uh, there should be a video of that as well. So uh, so there there's we've been try, tried to talk about it a little bit, but I guess uh, Seb is that another motivation to write a new blog post? 
<laughs> well, I think I, I wrote a uh, seven-part serial on my site, uh, so I think I ran out of stuff to say. But I may, <laughs> I may, I may try to to give a new edition. But I think the interesting content to go beyond what Vest is is all the components of Vest. So going and reading Gosh Koadzik on ATDD, going and reading about hexagonal architectures and where they come from, uh, reading about. Uh, mocking systems and uh, you know all the components that are part of this design uh, read about the Conway's law to understand how to apply that to your organization uh, read about uh, BDD read down north read all this stuff and then yeah. you will have all the various components that make uh, put together what it is absolutely yeah. look at look look at mob, mob programming as well as well yeah Okay, Martin um, and Sebastian, um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and um, I hope you, I hope I'll bump into you soon. It's been lovely uh, talking to you guys. Uh, hope everyone's enjoy going to enjoy this. I certainly did. Uh, thank you for having us on the show. Uh, hopefully, we'll find another subject to come and talk to you again. Absolutely, because I really enjoy these. Yeah, just let us know podcasts. when you have when you have something interesting to talk about. <laughs> Great, it's been a, it's been a pleasure.